There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Today's topic is COVID and mental health. And on today's podcast, I have the pleasure of interviewing two psychiatrists, Professor Soraya Sidat and Dr. Sandra Fernandez. Soraya is a distinguished professor of psychiatry and executive head of the Department of Psychiatry at Stellenbosch University. And Sandra is a neuropsychiatrist working at Tara Hospital and affiliated to the Department of Psychiatry at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. I'm going to begin with uh, Soraya. So, Soraya, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for hosting me, Christopher. Okay, so this is, this is a big topic. You know, I think that I can't recall a time when there has been more focus and discussion about mental health, certainly in the media and just in general, people talking about mental health. So I'm going to start off with a fairly generic question in terms of your impression. But what do you think the impact has been on mental health? If I'm thinking of this as a very emotional period, actually, you know, there's been a lot of fear, a lot of anger, uncertainty, distrust, even guilt. So, so what are your thoughts in terms of the, the impact on mental health? The negative impact has been pervasive. And um, as you rightly pointed out, COVID-19 has cast a spotlight on mental health and the mental health of, you know, societies across the board, including the general population, the impact of uh, quarantine, individuals who are considered to be at high risk mm. for adverse mental health outcomes, such as healthcare workers and those who have been directly infected. And the question is, you know, why has there been even more of a spotlight cast on COVID-19 in mm. relation to mental health compared to other pandemics in the 21st century? Because this is the first. Uh, pandemic that we've had in this century, uh, preceding SARS and H1N1, MERS and Ebola. And during those pandemics, there was some attention paid to mental health. But I think that, um, you know, COVID-19 has been different in many ways. It um, has been a pandemic of a mammoth proportion in terms of its crossing of uh, country and continental boundaries. It has been particularly uh, contagious, long-lasting and deadly. Other prior pandemics of the century have also been deadly. But I think it's a toxic cocktail. And as you pointed out, you know, the many facets of uncertainty and ambiguity that have brought fear and uh, much anxiety. Yes. Um, so I think that's been particularly unsettling from a mental health as well as a traumatic stress uh, perspective. And there's been much focus on prevention and on incorporating resilience as a mechanism for bolstering uh, mental health. 
and resilience is, you know, a construct that I think has been widely bandied uh, about and uh, also to some extent um, inappropriately applied in the context of positive mental health and well-being. I get it. So I'm going to come back to resilience because I think that that's a very important issue, as you say. I mean, the word is very commonly used and it's kind of seen as a catch-all. If we're more resilient, there will be better outcomes. But obviously, we need to get into what that means exactly. But I'm just curious from your side. I mean, what elements of COVID do you think have impacted most on mental health? I mean, I can think of fear of the illness, the lockdowns themselves, the masking, the social isolation, even the mistrust, you know, of the other, whether you know them or you don't know them, and almost a, a sense of paranoia at times. So have you identified or reflected on any specific elements of this whole pandemic time that has particularly impacted on mental health, or is it kind of all of the above? So I would say to all of the above, I think they've collectively converged in um, their negative impacts on mental health. I suppose what stands out about this pandemic is the ambiguity, the inconsistency in messaging, the uncertainty that has been ongoing since the start of the pandemic. So, um, you know, we're almost kind of two years down the line and there is still so much of uncertainty, misinformation about the pandemic. And I think it's also this kind of stop-start of quarantine and social distancing and behavioral measures being enforced and being relaxed. And I think that leaves people very, very uncertain, afraid, worried about their future. Yes, and I think that you, you highlighted something very important, the issue of messaging. I think that there has been a kind of a learning in real time, which has contributed to a stop-start, the chopping and changing of information, and all kinds of messaging, which has at times appeared maybe uh, illogical or almost irrational, and yet everybody is trying to get a handle on this, as I've said, in real time, and it's definitely not been an exact Science And unfortunately, I think this does contribute to the overall atmosphere of uncertainty. So, I mean, I don't know if you would agree with that, but that would be my understanding of things. Um, yes, I would agree. I think on, you know, on the other side of the coin, uh, while the attention on mental health um, has been very welcome and necessary, I do think that there's also been some exaggeration of the long-lasting yes. effects that have not been uh, backed up by data as yet. I do think we need to draw and we need to learn on uh, the knowledge that has been generated uh, on mental health from previous pandemics. But this is also a, a different pandemic. And so I think we need to ensure that we gather uh, data that, in hindsight, we will be able to say with confidence, you know, that these were the long-term impacts. These were the kind of pernicious impacts. The thing is that most individuals will demonstrate resilience and coping strategies and, um, you know, post-traumatic uh, growth. If we think about the pandemic as being a traumatic um, event, 
mm. of kind of mammoth uh, proportions. We will see, I think, going forward that the majority will have a resolution of the anxiety and fears. They will be able to look back on their own experiences of the pandemic in 2019, 2020, um, 2021. But most will be able to look back and will be able to reflect, uh, you know, through kind of growth and uh, positive adaptation. There will be a minority and particularly those groups that are at high risk yes. that may continue to experience mental health problems and develop psychopathology disorder, a mental disorder. Yes. Um, and those are the individuals that need to be monitored. They need to be um, more intensively studied going forward and they need to be studied over a long period of time. Because I think that, you know, in five years, we need to know if we do have another pandemic in the century, um, how can we better respond and how can we better address mental health problems? I think that's been one of the issues. We haven't gathered good enough data to make scalable, you know, decisions and to deliver scalable interventions along the lines of prevention. Well, I think you said something for me which is very important, is that the vast majority of people are going to come through this emotionally, ultimately intact. Obviously, in the heat of the moment, one experiences the events in a certain way. And then I think that, you know, we've spoken about resilience briefly, but I think that there is an inherent survival capacity um, that is part of the human condition. And I believe that most people have already found ways of adapting and moving forward. I think it's just, as I say, in the heat of the moment, you can't quite see over the hill that actually you're going to look back in a year or two years' time or three years' time and say, wow, that was a really difficult time. We came through it. What have we learned and how have we grown as a consequence. I think that's what I'm understanding you saying, and certainly that's been my own sense of the situation. Yes, and um, going forward, I suspect that it will be the secondary impacts of the pandemic that may be longer lasting, mm. you know, the economic impact, yes. the um, impact, you know, in relation to loss and, you know, having to kind of grieve on multiple levels which um, I think, you know, many people have been faced with directly, indirectly. I think it will be, you know, in relation to other secondary impacts like stigma and prejudice and discrimination, stresses that um, have been magnified uh, by the pandemic. And we know that, you know, this is a pandemic that has not affected people equally so on the one hand, it has been indiscriminating in terms of its contagiousness, but on the other hand, it has magnified discrimination stresses that were there pre-pandemic. So I think it will be those secondary impacts, but also during this pandemic globally, there have been sharp increases in particular forms of interpersonal violence, such as partner violence and uh, childhood abuse and neglect. And I think those secondary impacts could have long-lasting sequelae that, you know, will need to be monitored and uh, appropriately addressed. Yes. Because I think we'll see more and more uh, going forward that, you know, in primary care um, settings, patients presenting for medical health problems, unless, you know, we make a concerted effort to inquire about 
uh, mental health problems, about the secondary impacts of the pandemic, we're not going to be addressing the secondary impacts, you know, in a way that I think is is needed. So I think that's really interesting because what I'm understanding is that there are events taking place within the pandemic that are related to the pandemic, but not the virus directly, but as a consequence of measures that have been implemented as part of the approach to the pandemic, which will manifest themselves in the fullness of time. So I think these are the secondary effects that you're talking about, where, you know, these kind of traumas of interpersonal violence, childhood abuse will be sort of downline appearing and there will be a link that was potentially established or could be established with the pandemic. Is that my understanding? Correct. Yes. And, you know, I mentioned a group at risk. So I think, you know, those are also individuals that will need to be flagged and, and monitored and given particular attention when they present to healthcare settings. And I speak specifically about healthcare settings because that's the environment in which we work. Mm. And, um, you know, it's a primary care level that most patients with mental illness are presenting and often, uh, you know, mental illness or even Milder mental health problems are not picked up, they're not diagnosed, they're not elicited uh, because they're not asked about. So those at-risk groups would be, well, children, youth, yes. uh, the elderly, those with pre-existing mental illness, um, healthcare workers who are presenting to um, medical settings for their own health, and then those who've been infected, particularly those who have been severely ill through COVID, you know, who've been admitted to hospital, you know, survived, um, who've been in intensive care units. Those are the individuals that I think we need to pay particular attention to. And, um, you know, going forward in a few years from now, I would be kind of very interested in looking again at the outcomes of those at-risk groups you know, their health as well as mental health outcomes. Yeah, I think that's very important that we're starting to delineate potential at-risk groups for future scrutiny and being aware. But I'm particularly interested in this traumatic experience of the survivor who has been through hospitalization, who's been through the ventilator, the intensive care unit, come out the other side. And I don't know, certainly in psychiatry, to what extent we routinely even think about the exposure and experience of such medical procedures. But now with the pandemic, where it's been much more in your face, so to speak, I'm just wondering what the consequences might be in terms of, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder. What are your thoughts on that? So, you know, this is an area that has drawn much controversy as it did with previous pandemics, in particular the HIV pandemic in the uh, 1980s and 1990s. And when there was a surge in the literature around mental health effects of an HIV diagnosis, there was a lot of controversy about whether a diagnosis of HIV could indeed be construed as a life-threatening traumatic event. Um, as we conventionally think about when we think about traumatic events that lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. But if we accept that, you know, family members who've been exposed to a loved one who, you know, has been seriously ill, Mm. where, you know, there were serious concerns about that family member dying, 
you know, that may be construed as kind of witnessing of a very traumatic experience. And so there has been much study of uh, that type of traumatic exposure. Now, there are clinicians and researchers in the field um, who do not agree that indirect exposure sort of through the media or, or indirectly witnessing family member dying from COVID or being seriously ill from COVID can be a traumatic event. They would construe those types of events as stressors, as stress for life events. Right. And they would argue that it's not post-traumatic stress disorder that we are seeing in those individuals who are presenting with a variety of uh, stress-related symptoms such as you know, inability to concentrate, um, having intrusive thoughts about themselves being infected or about that ill family member dying, uh, being um, hypervigilant in relation to their own health, yes. you know, constantly checking uh, themselves in terms of symptom screening, becoming very irritable, having sleep disturbances, all of the symptoms that, you know, we typically associate with post-traumatic a stress disorder, there are those who would say that you can diagnose a different type of condition right. in those individuals who are experiencing a lot of distress and functional impairment, something that is more along the lines of an adjustment disorder. Right. And for those of us who work in psychiatry, an adjustment disorder is a maladaptive reaction right. to a stressor, but we expect it to be short-lived. Right. We expect that once the stressor goes away, that there will be a resolution of symptoms and a return to, right. you know, previous level of functioning. So I think whichever way you look at it, yep. we know from data that has been collected during this pandemic, but also the other four pandemics in this century, that if we consider these events to be traumatic events or a diagnosis of PTSD, the prevalence of PTSD is high. Right. It's around 22%. So roughly speaking, one in five who has lived through this pandemic, who's okay. experienced a traumatic event, will meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. So we can anticipate those kinds of levels. And I think the big issue for me is how much is illness versus understandable response you know, as in distress to an abnormal situation. Either way, there may be an increasing call on mental health services, I would imagine. And it just brings me to a question which I think is important for all of us as psychiatrists in terms of patient care. Do you think that all this focus and increased awareness of mental health and related issues, do you think it's going to move things towards increasing resources for all of the mental health disciplines in terms of government funding? In this country, I don't think that uh, this pandemic is going to directly impact on resource allocation for mental health. I think it may be uh, a consideration. It may be one factor in the mix. In the Western Cape, for example, we um, have um, been informed that, you know, there may be greater resource allocation because of budget Underspending, but right. we're still waiting on a confirmation that there will be, you know, it will never be equitable relative to, you know, other 
uh, areas of medicine, as right. you know. Yes. Um, we have a lot of catch-up to do <laughs> in the mental health field. In general, um, never mind after this. I mean, I think in general we're sort of always at the back of the queue, it seems to me. So that's why uh, I've, I've kind of raised the question. You know, talk is great. Everybody's talking about things, but obviously action is what's required. Soraya, I want to thank you for the time that you've given uh, today to speak about not everything that we might have wanted to speak about, but certainly I think we have captured some of the issues that I think are important, and obviously further discussion and further deliberation is going to be required. So, once again, thank you so much. Sandra, you've been very patient. Thank you for joining us on Beyond Madness uh, in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Now, Sandra, you're a clinical psychiatrist. You work at a psychiatric hospital, a specialized psychiatric hospital. Mm -hmm. And obviously, these have been unprecedented times in terms of the pandemic. It's not something that we necessarily anticipated or prepared for. It kind of arrived and we had to adapt in general. But I'm interested how at a specialized psychiatric hospital the pandemic impacted and what kind of measures you had to take to adapt to this situation. Thank you, Prof. Zabo. So I think it was sprung upon us very quickly with no notice. We sort of knew that something was on the horizon when we were hearing the deaths in Wuhan and all over the world. And I think as soon as the health minister, the previous health minister of South Africa announced that um, we were going to be impacted by this virus and this pandemic, we were given instructions, all facilities were given instructions to prepare and right. to put measures in place. Now, as a hospital and being a specialized psychiatric hospital, we are not situated in a general hospital where we have access to all the medical facilities and all the other specialists. So we made a decision that we actually needed to be very proactive in how we handle this pandemic and ensure that our patients were not in any way marginalized from the care that other patients would receive, that we saw overseas in Britain, in Italy, etc., and how people were dying and were not having access to oxygen and various other forms of treatment. So we made a decision to really look at our infrastructure our policies, and we decided to really modify the current infrastructure, mm -hmm. first and foremost, to be able to open up a COVID-dedicated ward for our inpatients so that we could also, at some level, remove the burden of care on other physicians at the general hospitals. And we set up um, the infrastructure in order to have a ward dedicated for COVID-19 um, treatment using oxygen. And also using continuous positive airway pressure types of modalities so that they could have access to that very early on if they decompensated. We had to look at policies in order to ensure that the staff were on board, that there was also a reaching out to the staff in the form of education around the pandemic, around um, they having a support system for not just for themselves, but families back home. We also had to look at um, the families of patients. So a lot of our patients stay at the hospital for protracted period of time because they're being treated for various types of disorders. And in the past, they would sometimes, if they're relatively stable, they might go home for a weekend. Yes. 
But because we were completely locked down in the beginning, we were completely cut off from the rest of society and patients that were really in the hospital had no access to their families, bar it from perhaps a phone call. So we also realized that a lot of these families of the patients that we had, whether they had COVID or didn't have COVID, were dependent on SASA grants, quite a large percentage of them. And they were struggling at home. So families were basically hungry. They had no food. They had no access to any form of resources. And we then um, reached out to various aspects in the community and uh, we fundraised. We got various ways of having sort of food parcels brought into hospital. And our social workers were involved in also reaching out to those families and delivering some of the sort of basic parcels that they would tie them over for a limited period of time until the lockdown was perhaps eased. These were some of the things that we had to do. And I think it's quite yes. amazing, actually, because when you when you actually dig down into all of the thought that went into the situation in terms of how you had to manage it and all of the potential implications. So somebody who's in hospital who receives a grant, who cannot receive the grant, on mm -hmm. which the families at home are potentially dependent, mm -hmm. how to actually bridge that and make sure that they get what they need. Because I think that the impact on the families must have been quite profound, not just in terms of not seeing their loved one in hospital, but in terms of access mm. to the kind of resources that you're talking about. Definitely. It was huge. I mean, we had families phoning us all the time, not just telling us that they were struggling at home and didn't have access to various forms of, you know, support and food, but they also were very afraid for their loved ones that were in hospital, thinking that they're going to die from right. this virus. So we had all these issues to deal with, and it really meant that as an institution or as a hospital, we had to be quite flexible ourselves, and we had to really have a multi-pronged approach in terms of how to deal with this virus and this pandemic. So not only from a medical point of view that we modified the way that we did things. Yes. We had to, on a personal level, I had to upskill myself yes. in regards to ICU type of treatment, uh, respiratory support for patients, which is not something that's not routine. not routine for a psychiatrist or a sure. neuropsychiatrist. So it's something that I had to do myself. Um, the nursing staff themselves also had to do a lot of that because we sent them on uh, ICU support courses at Charlotte Makeke right. in order to upskill them so that they could be prepared and manage the COVID patients in my hospital in the dedicated ward for COVID-19 and the persons under investigation wards, which is the PUI wards. And at the same time, we had to also then have the other various sort of sociological type of outreach yes. from social workers, from our allied teams, which include psychologists. Psychologists were very involved in setting up groups in the hospital from the staff in order to educate them and provide support. There was a lot of anxiety in the beginning among staff members. It was very palpable, a yes. um, lot of tension among staff, a lot of stigma right at the beginning around this virus. So if mm. you became positive, then all of a sudden it became a very difficult issue to deal with right at the beginning. So the Allied team were involved. Uh, we had the occupational therapist that set up almost a, if I can call it a factory line, yes. using our patients as a way of upskilling their, their own sort of level of functioning by setting up a line where they 
created face masks, cloth face masks. Okay. So they set all of this up. So not only help the patients to focus on different aspects of their lives over and above what they were doing in the wards, gave them a relief on something to do for themselves, but they were also providing the face mask for the doctors in the hospital, uh-huh. the nurses, and to various other sort of clerks and other admin people, support people in the hospital. So it really required a whole involvement, a whole team and a whole hospital deciding that we are going to be in the forefront. We are not going to sit behind and um, just rely on another um, general hospital that will provide us support. Rather, we decided that we're actually going to be in the front line. Well, I think that's fascinating, actually to hear how much went on literally behind the scenes. Because I think as a family member of a patient or as a member of the general public, one has no appreciation of just the extent and the depth Mm. of adaptation that took place in a very short space of time. And I wonder to what extent the existing multidisciplinary approach that psychiatry has in general really came to the fore in terms of already having all of these various professionals working together generally Mm. anyway, Mm. coming together to problem solve and to each provide their piece of the puzzle in terms of moving forward. I think it only intensified it, actually. I think we've always worked as a team, as you've mentioned, as a multidisciplinary team. But I think this pandemic really brought everybody together. Almost we became our own little family at the hospital. We set up all these processes in unison. So if we had a committee, for example, a COVID committee or a surveillance committee, we had representation from all areas in the hospital to ensure that everybody was on board and would be able to provide something and bring it to the table so that we could then put processes in place and change policies for ourselves or guidelines. Absolutely. So it's been a very inclusive process. And I think that in a way, it's probably strengthened the team going forward past the pandemic, where everybody has seen that they do have a role to play. Everybody has an important role to play, no matter how big or small, and that it all contributes to the whole, which is ultimately optimal patient care. But I think it's also been important to not lose sight of the caregivers. Because I think that this is a situation that has impacted on everyone. I think it's almost been the first time, and I've said it before, where patients and caregivers are on the same side of the line here. Mm. We're all having to deal with the same threat, and we're all having to deal with our own personal issues and our own personal fears and anxieties. But the caregiver still has to provide care. And I think that for me, one of the concerns obviously has been, and this has been spoken about uh, before, but is the the burnout mm. of the mm. caregiver? Have you have you seen that in the in the caregiving fraternity, certainly in the hospital and beyond, in terms of discussions with colleagues? Yes, definitely. I would say that um, high levels of burnout, high levels of just high intensity work throughout. I mean, it's been almost two years, and we only just now are sort of taking a bit of a breather only sort of waiting for the next wave to potentially hit us. Yes. But the first, second, and third wave were quite brutal and very intense. So I think, yes, people experience high levels of burnout. And for as a small hospital, because we have quite a small complement of staff, yes. you know, you have people that have been actually working nonstop for almost two years right. with, with very limited time 
off. That goes for doctors and nurses and various other teams, allied teams. Right. Also, just answering your question further, that caregivers of patients mm. back home have also struggled. You're talking about the families. I'm talking about the families. Yes, let's hear a little yes, bit about the families. Yes. Yeah. So there has been a reaching out from families, a lot of families struggling. I think socioeconomically, obviously, that's the greatest factor that has impacted during this pandemic. And we've definitely seen that at a very sort of concrete level at our hospital, in the patients that I mentioned, in the reaching out that we had to do to the families because they were struggling. But it has been an ongoing struggle for families. A lot of families of our patients lost their jobs if they did have a job to start off with. So... It has been that constant almost um, there's one um, thing that hits them after another, and I think it has been difficult for people. So people are struggling to cope just generally yes. with ongoing sort of isolation, and perhaps the isolation is somewhat eased a little bit now. Mm. There's a more opening up in society at large. But there's still quite a significant level of isolation, and a lot of people have lost jobs, so they remain at home. And so they're still not really connecting at such a great level as they had pre-pandemic. So, I mean, what sort of advice does one give to families who are battling to cope? What sort of advice? I mean, obviously, there are a lot of practical issues that you've Mm -hmm. raised. I mean, there's bread and butter issues, literally. But, I mean, in general, how they cope with their anxieties and their concerns – what sort of advice or what sort of input are we able to provide? I think first and foremost, it's to be able to recognize in yourself that you are struggling. Mm. And that can sometimes be difficult to recognize that if you're not really aware with what's kind of happening around you or within your own inner sort of coping mechanism or psyche. So the first step is maybe to be able to recognize it. And then perhaps then afterwards is to reach out to someone. Yes. There are various NGOs and support groups out there that do provide support to people. Sometimes there's some difficulty that people experience in, in trying to gain access to some of those support groups. But, um, I mean, for example, I can just mention, and it's been mentioned many times in platforms like this, such mm. as SADAC. yes. South African Depression and Anxiety yes. Group, yes. And um, things like the healthcare um, network that's been set up for… Professionals. Yes, for professionals. So that's a different part of it. But so there are various um, areas out there where people can reach out and to be able to then talk about the experience. Yes. So I still feel that, you know, people have had quite a remarkable inner resilience during this time. Now, resilience is a key word because I think yes. it's often bandied around. So when, when you say resilience, what do you mean by that? Well, I think people have, despite all the difficulties that we've seen over the last two years, people have somehow managed to just keep going, yes. even though they've struggled. Yes. But they've managed to kind of... You know, they've fallen to the ground, they've gotten up, and they've pushed forward. And um, resilience is something that, you know, you'd have inside of you that a lot of it is dependent on how you were brought up. Yes. It's dependent on various uh, Personality. internal personalities, you know, aspects of yourself. And some of these things one might not necessarily immediately be able to change or not. But I think if one has that awareness 
and that you're able to somehow pull something from within you and also maybe to just remind yourself that this is actually a shared experience, which I often yes. talk about, that this pandemic is a shared experience. So everybody in the entire world, whether you're in South Africa, Italy or Korea, mm. we've all actually experienced the same thing. So there's something quite unique about the shared experience that you don't see often with other types of catastrophes or things and wars and things that happen. And I think the shared experience means that we can say that we're all in this together and somehow we will come out of it at some point. It is going to be tough, but we're able to, you know, if we're able to hold that in mind uh, and be able to somehow pull our resources and maybe – you know, get some help if one is really struggling from various other psychological um, services, services yes. or NGOs, etc. Then I think you know you can make it. And I think that sticking to one's basic routines and keeping Definitely. in mind the fact that it will end. I don't know when, mm-hmm. and I've just got to keep going. Yes. And having a daily structure, yeah. and maybe having. Less thought about too far in the future and more immediate one day at a time. And you get through each day. I just want to change tack slightly. Do you think there's been an increase in mental illness as a consequence of COVID or we've just seen more distress, which is a natural response to an unnatural situation? Mm -hmm. What would you say? So I can only really speak from my perspective, which Mm. is at a specialized psychiatric hospital. Mm. Obviously, we would see the much more severe cases that you would have out there in the community. So from my perspective, I don't think that we're seeing large increase in depression or anxiety, etc. We Mm. have seen some during the very first wave, during the hard lockdown, we had high levels of anxiety, not just in the staff, but also in the community. We had lots of people phoning in and really struggling, especially in the beginning. We were not able to see patients on an outpatient in in an outpatient basis, right. We had to give them medications for sometimes four months at a time, which meant that they couldn't cut they would come in to collect once. Did that that's it. Did that impact on compliance? And when I speak about compliance I mean people taking their medication as they're supposed to. I don't think hugely. I think there was in some that maybe compliance was impaired, but to some extent I feel not so much from that they chose to not take right. medication, but rather it was a, a circumstances that prevented them right. from actually coming to get medication, etc. So that impacted quite a lot in the community. So to answer your question, have I seen greater levels of anxiety and depression? Not necessarily. Have we seen people struggling to cope almost a psychological kind yes. of difficulty in having to deal with the everyday mundane routine that we now have being stuck at home mm. that most people have having to cope with all the stresses at home working from home working from home lots of gender based violence, violence. Okay. so that's been a huge thing that we issue. hear from people from right. patients and families mm-hmm. lots of abuse in the community at the family level and lots of children have been impacted severely, I would say. And it's quite interesting yeah. you say that because that's exactly what Soraya was saying in terms of what we're going to have to look at down the line. Definitely. What are the consequences Definitely. going to be down the line? Now, I don't want to end on a, on a pessimistic note, but I think what's important is that we do identify future potential 
risks and problems that might arise. But I think the, the sense I'm getting is that as a community of psychiatrists and allied health professionals working together with our patients, we've actually certainly in one location at Tara Hospital, I'm sure it's been replicated elsewhere, mm-hmm. have come together and actually worked towards finding ways of getting through. And I think ultimately that's the message that I think needs to come through is that we will get through. And we have done probably far better than we necessarily even realize. We'll only be able to look back potentially and and see that. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think the one thing that maybe I just wanted to say is that vaccination is very important. Right. Because vaccination impacts the virus going forward. It also impacts on the potential long-term effect of COVID that some people have been experiencing, such as the long COVID. And so at our hospital, we actually have been chosen. We are one of the seven sites that have been chosen to be a vaccination site for currently the booster shots for healthcare workers. But we opened up as a vaccination center also quite early on. Because we saw the importance following the evolution of COVID at our hospital and what we needed to do, that we had to follow this process and ensure that not just we did the medical side for for people, plus we did the psychological aspect for people and for families, but now we had to also be on the forefront of ensuring that we provided the vaccinations to just ensure that we actually are able to follow through with everything into the future. Okay. Sandra? Thank you for joining us and to both Soraya and Sandra. It's been great having you. Remember, there is no health without mental health. And I trust that today's podcast has provided you with greater understanding of an issue that has indeed affected all in society. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.